This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, Dr. Craig is interviewed by Frank Turek on the topic, Is the Christian Faith Reasonable? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Welcome to Hope One Live, ladies and gentlemen. We're doing these programs because there's only two things you can have in life. You can have either hope or you can have despair. And our intention is to bring you hope as we're all locked down. And a lot of times I'm asked a, a question about who do I read? Who do I listen to? How do I educate myself so I can go on college campuses and give answers to difficult questions? And the number one person I listen to is our guest today. His name is Dr. William Lane Craig. Most of you know whom he is. He has a wonderful ministry that has been going on for probably near 40 years to college campuses. He's debated more people than any other Christian, I would assume, over the past 30 or 40 years. He has a website, reasonablefaith.org. He has a podcast you need to listen to. I listen to it every week. He has a defender's class, which is a near seminary level education that you can watch off of his app, the Reasonable Faith app. And he has a question of the week. He has amazing videos and he's a wonderful gentleman. Dr. William Lane Craig, welcome to Hope One Live. Well, thank you, Frank. It's good to be with you today. It's always great to be with you. Tell me, how are you and Jan faring under the lockdown? Well, I almost feel guilty about saying this, but it's had almost no effect on my life at all. Uh, I've had to cancel a few speaking engagements, mm -hmm. but basically I spend morning to evening in my home office studying and writing. And so it's been an enormously productive time for me in my uh, study of the historical atom. And so for me at least, it's been really great. I, I think that for people who are writers and composers and artists who work in their studio or their office, uh, you can get along in this uh, pandemic quite well. Bill, how did all this begin for you? I mean, how did you decide you wanted to get into philosophy and theology and apologetics? Because right now, I would say you're, if not the top, and the top two or three of people that I know about anyway, uh, that uh, support other people like myself doing what we do. How, how did it begin for you? Well, for me, it was at Wheaton College uh, in my undergraduate education that I got the vision of sharing the gospel in the context of giving an intellectual defense of the Christian faith. And that led me then to my graduate studies um, and then into a ministry of apologetics. I was inspired by the example of Edward John Carnell, who was a Wheaton grad who had doctorates in both philosophy and theology. And I never thought that I could uh, do that. But following the Lord's guidance along the way, that has come to fruition in our life and ministry. And you have spread that around with Reasonable Faith chapters around the world. Tell people about Reasonable Faith chapters and if they're ever interested in starting one, how do they do so? Well, we actually got this idea from Hugh Ross and Reasons to Believe. They have these local clubs. Uh, and I feel that many 
Christians who are intellectually engaged with their faith feel isolated. They mm -hmm. are in churches where people don't understand them. They don't share the same concerns. They're not interested in the questions they are. And so I thought what we could do would be provide a forum for these people to get together and to discuss these issues that are so important. And so we started looking for leaders who would uh, lead a reasonable faith chapter at their university or church or in their town. And we have sought to empower these local leaders to make them as effective as they can possibly be in their own ministry as they feel mm -hmm. to develop it. And now it's just exploding in Latin America, in Spanish-speaking countries, as well as in the United States and around the world. So it's really grown beyond what I could have imagined. And if they go to reasonablefaith.org, can they inquire about how to, how to get involved? Yes, I think there's a drop-down on the menu for uh, chapters, and that mm -hmm. will put them in touch with Tyson James, who is our global chapters director, and he will guide them through the application process to become a local reasonable faith chapter director. And once you've done wanna... it, you can use all of our materials and you'll be credentialed to use the brand um, and, and develop the ministry as best you feel led to. Wonderful. I, you know, um, I want to go through some of the arguments, Bill, that you give when you do debates. I mean, uh, I, I remember uh, this had to be 1998 in Atlanta. You were debating, um, William Buckley was the moderator. I'm trying to think of who you were debating at the time. <laughs> What's, uh, who is it? Peter Atkins. Peter Atkins, yes, Peter Atkins. And that was, <laughs> that was such a wonderful exchange. I still refer to one of the clips that you had with Peter Atkins about how science can explain everything. It was a brilliant retort that you had. And one of the best things about that debate was William Buckley, because I remember him announcing you and he said, representing the Christian position is Dr. William Lane Craig. And then he said, representing the devil is Dr. <laughs> Peter Atkins. And Buckley, that was a classic exchange. Yeah, I mean, Buckley was such a hoot. And this was the second of my debates that he had moderated. He actually moderated debate at Moody Church in Chicago between uh -huh. me and John Dominic Crossan. And it was there that we got to know him. Uh, and of course, he's a famous conservative commentator, really the father of American conservatism. But he also uh, had a, a belief in Christianity as well. Yes. Um, and so he was very eager to be a part of these debates. Yeah, well, that was a, a wonderful exchange. And you've had so many great debates over the years. Oh, yeah. I remember when you debated Sam Harris and he said something like, Dr. William Lane Craig is the one Christian that puts the fear of God into atheists. And you've yeah, really- So many memorable moments over the yeah. years from these debates. It's been a, a real adventure. Well, the amazing thing about it, Bill, and I've introduced you this way before, you're sort of like a quarterback who says, okay, I'm gonna about to, I'm gonna, we're gonna run a post pattern. Let's see if you can stop it. We're about to run a down and out. Let's see if you can stop it. You use usually the same four or five arguments, 
all the time, and I have never seen an atheist really refute any of them. It, yeah. it, it, it's not just your technique, it's also the arguments that you're bringing. So if it's okay, I wanna go through some of the arguments that you normally bring, and then bring up some objections to them, and then we're gonna take questions from our, from our live audience. All right. So let's start with my favorite and your favorite, the Kalam cosmological argument. You wrote a book back in 1979, I can't believe it's been 41 years already, about this argument. Can you give an overview of the argument for us? The argument stems from the efforts of early church fathers to refute Aristotle's doctrine of the eternity of the universe. And so they developed all these arguments against the possibility of an infinite past. This then uh, was absorbed by Islam when it swept over North Africa and then was mediated back to the Christian West through Jewish philosophers and theologians hmm. who lived side by side with Muslims in Spain and became the subject of great debate among Christians. So it is an argument that has tremendous intersectarian appeal. Some of the greatest fans of the argument today are Muslim apologists, oddly enough. That's right. Um, and the argument has received, I think, a tremendous impetus in our day by the development of astrophysical cosmology, which suggests that the universe is not past eternal, as had been assumed since the time of Aristotle through the uh, 19th century, but rather had a beginning at some time in the finite past. And so this has really revived the argument today. Uh, it basically goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And then you can do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the universe and a number of very striking uh, theological properties of this uncaused first cause uh, fall out from such an analysis. Well, mention that, Bill, because the reason it's my favorite argument is because it does give you more attributes of the existence or for the existence of God than any other any of the other natural theology arguments. What are the what are the attributes that seem to naturally flow out of this argument? Well, it will give you an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, timeless, spaceless, personal creator of the universe with enormous power. Mm. Now, what I like about the argument is that that is a modest conclusion. It says nothing, for example, about the moral qualities mm. of the creator. He could be an absolute stinker for all we know, <laughs> which means that the problem of evil cannot be raised as an objection to the argument because mm. it's not part of the argument that the creator is good. You'll need a moral argument for that. But as part of a cumulative case for theism, the Kalam cosmological argument gives you some of the most important um, theistic properties that there are. Now, you have also, uh, you're famous for giving the, the scientific arguments for the beginning, but could you go through a couple of the philosophical lines of evidence you give for the beginning? Yes, there are a variety of philosophical arguments for the finitude of the past. Um, I classify these under two heads. The first would be arguments that are based on the impossibility of the existence of an actually infinite number of things. And the idea here is that if you could have an actually infinite number of things, it would lead to all sorts of crazy absurdities. 
Um, and therefore, the number of past events can't be actually infinite. They need to be finite, and that implies that the universe began to exist. The other kind of arguments can be classed under the heading of arguments based on the impossibility of forming an actually infinite collection of things by adding one member after another. And this mm. argument is independent of the first. Even if you can have actually infinite collections, the point is that you can't form one by mm. adding one member after another. Um, but that's exactly the way the past has been formed. One right. occurring after another. And so from that, it follows that the past cannot be actually infinite. So those are two um, types of argument that might be offered uh, on behalf of the finitude of the past. Let's deal with some objections, Bill, to this argument. I know you have a presentation, I believe it's on YouTube, something like the 10 worst objections to the cosmological argument. So <laughs> you've dealt with many of these already. In fact, I, I think I remember you saying at one point, the past hundred years has basically been a affirmation of the standard Big Bang cosmology, if, yeah. I, if I'm quoting you correctly here. Trying to follow, as a layperson, the uh, course of astrophysical cosmology from Einstein's discovery of the general theory of relativity up until today. And over the last hundred years or so, the history of astrophysical cosmology could be summarized as basically the failure of one attempt after another mm -hmm. to avoid the beginning of the universe predicted by the standard Big Bang model that was developed back in 1920. Well, um, here's an objection that I hear sometimes, or at least a question. How do we know it was creation out of nothing and not some sort of pre-existing material. Because I think a lot of people have the misinterpretation or the, the misunderstanding that maybe the Big Bang was the creation of some sort of dense pellet of you know some kind of pre-existing material. Yeah. Well, philosophically, I would argue that it is impossible to have a perfectly, what I would call quiescent state. That is to say, a state that involved absolutely no change whatsoever. Uh, any material entity is going to involve change on the molecular and the atomic levels, at least. Uh, nothing can exist at absolute zero, uh, mm -hmm. frozen into absolute immobility. And therefore, there will always be events as long as you have matter. So if the series of past events cannot be beginningless, mm. beginning, it follows that the material content of the universe had a beginning. Now. Scientifically, the origin of the universe in the Big Bang model is not just the origin of our universe. Rather, it is the origin of all the matter and energy and even of physical space and time themselves. And so that gives scientific confirmation to the philosophical arguments for the creation mm. of the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. What would you say to Stephen Hawking's assertion that because there's a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing? Well, I think that that's just a philosophical mistake uh, mm -hmm. on his part. It assumes, first of all, that there would be uh, the law of gravity if absolute nothing existed. But then beyond that, the model that he offers, in fact, 
doesn't offer any explanation for why the universe comes into being. He just offers a, an account of the universe whereby the beginning of the universe doesn't involve an initial singularity, that is a point at which all the laws of nature break down. On mm -hmm. his model, the laws of nature apply all the way back to the first moment of time, the beginning of the universe, um, but it doesn't provide any sort of explanation as to why that came into being. And that's only logical if you think about it, Frank. There is no physics of non-being. Mm. Physics is always a physics of what exists mm -hmm. in the material world. Uh, and therefore, there cannot be any explanation physically for the appearance of that material world. I get this objection sometimes on a college campus. They'll say, why can't we just say we don't know what caused the universe? It's agnosticism. Yeah. Well, that isn't enough to refute the second premise, which is that the universe began to exist. Given mm. that the universe began to exist, and the first premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause, then it follows with logical necessity that there is a cause of the universe. And then it will come down to that conceptual analysis. What does it mean to be a cause of space and time of all matter and energy? And that brings you to an immaterial, timeless, spaceless, enormously powerful, uncaused first cause. And then I give three arguments as well for why this uncaused first cause must be personal. So I think I've done my philosophical duty with respect to answering that question as to um, what properties a first cause of the universe must have. Wouldn't the personal aspect of the being, Bill, also imply intelligence? In order to be personal, you have to have intelligence, correct? By personal, I mean that it is a mind that mm -hmm. is involved with freedom of the will. And so, yes, this would be an intelligence. And then that is just reinforced by the fine-tuning argument. Well, let's go right into the fine-tuning argument. because. Uh, and by the way, friends, uh, Dr. Craig has put this all in a very readable format uh, it's a book called On Guard, which I highly recommend you get. Uh, and any layperson can understand On Guard. If you want to go into more depth, you can get his book, Reasonable Faith. But let's talk about the fine-tuning argument, if we can, Bill. Uh, it kind of uh, give an overview of that for us, would you? Sure. One of the most remarkable discoveries of contemporary astrophysics is that the Big Bang was not a chaotic, unordered event. Rather, from the very beginning, the universe is characterized by certain constants and certain quantities in nature that are incredibly fine-tuned to permit the existence of embodied conscious life. Hmm. If even one of these fundamental constants or quantities would, were to be altered by a hair's breadth, uh, the universe would be life prohibiting. Hmm. So the question that scientists have grappled with is what is the best explanation of this remarkable fine tuning of the cosmos? And in the scientific literature, there are basically three proffered explanations, either physical necessity, they had to be this way, mm -hmm. chance, it's just an accident that mm -hmm. they have values, or thirdly, 
design. They were designed to have these values. And so an argument for a cosmic designer would go like this. Premise one, the fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. And here you would present arguments against those alternatives from which it follows logically three, therefore it is due to design. Bill, what is the most persistent objection you hear to the fine-tuning argument? Well, among students who are not informed about these things, the most probable objection is that the universe is not fine-tuned for our existence. Mm -hmm. in fact, um, physics does not exhibit the sort of fine-tuning that I've just described to you. That is patently false, however. The multiplicity and the variety of constants and quantities that have to be fine-tuned in this way is so great that the probability that any future physics will ever eliminate it entirely is highly, highly unlikely. So hmm. among scientists, among physicists who are informed, the most prominent objection is the multiverse. Hmm. That if our universe is the only one it is, then the odds that it would be fine-tuned in the way that it is are just impossible to face. It, it, the chances are uh, practically infinitesimal. And therefore, what they do is they multiply their probabilistic resources by imagining that there is a multiverse, an array of worlds of which our universe is just a member, and moreover, all of these worlds are randomly ordered in their constants and quantities, so that by chance alone, if this ensemble of worlds is infinite, then finely tuned worlds will appear somewhere in the ensemble, and lo and behold, here we are, we happen to be in this one, but nothing to be surprised about, given the multi, uh, multiverse of randomly tuned worlds. So this is the major alternative to a designer today, uh, the multiverse hypothesis. And what would be your first comeback to this wild speculation for which there's no evidence? <laughs> <laughs> well, what you just said, Roger of Oxford University has offered a really powerful argument against using the multiverse to explain fine tuning. And it's basically this, that in order for observers to exist, you don't have to have a world that is fine tuned like our universe is. You could have a universe which is no larger than our solar system, um, where you have an island of order and a sea of chaos outside of that. And that sort of universe is vastly more probable than a finely mm -hmm. universe like ours. In fact, the most probable observable universe would be an even smaller universe, one that consists of a single brain that fluctuates into being out of the quantum vacuum with illusory perceptions of an external world. So if you appeal to the multiverse hypothesis, um, you have no way of knowing whether or not you are an ordinary observer like us, or whether or not, in fact, you are a Boltzmann brain, as they're called, with the illusory perception of a world that does not exist. 
I like what Paul Davies says about this. He's an agnostic astronomer. He says uh, the, the multiverse is a dodge <laughs> because the no one would be no one would be positing multiple universes if the evidence for design wasn't so strong. You know, uh, now that, that's a further objection is that it's ad hoc in mm -hmm. that postulated simply to explain away the fine tuning, but there's no independent evidence to believe that such mm. a exists. Mm. Whereas in the case of theism, we have many independent arguments like the Kalam cosmological mm. argument mm -hmm. and others that there is such a transcendent creator of the universe so that it isn't ad hoc in the way that the multiverse uh, hypothesis is. For the viewers out here wanting to ask uh, Dr. Craig a question, and I know you do, in about 15 minutes, we're going to go to your questions. Just type the word question in big block letters, make it very succinct, complete English, put it in the YouTube feed or the Facebook feed, and we'll get to as many of them as we can once we get to questions. But uh, Bill, time is going quickly here. I, I want to move on to the moral argument uh, because most of the objections that I get to Christianity on a college campus, and I know you do as well, uh, usually revolve around morality somehow. There are moral objections to the Christian faith, moral yeah. objections to how Jesus wants us to live, and people don't like that. Can you give us an overall uh, argument first, and then we'll deal with some of the objections to this? I stumbled into this moral argument through the back door, so to speak. I was speaking on university campuses on the absurdity of life without God, and one of the aspects of that is that I argued that if there is no God to be the absolute standard of good and evil, right and wrong, then we are lost in sociocultural relativism. And there is no objective right and wrong, good and evil. All things are permitted, as Dostoevsky said. And the reaction that I got from students was, no, no, we do know that certain things are really wrong or really good, that love is good, and the Holocaust was evil. We, we know that objective moral values and duties do exist. Well, now, that didn't refute anything I said. What it did mm. gave me the missing premise in a moral argument that would go like this. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, but objective moral values and duties do exist. That was the point the students were making from which it follows logically three, therefore God exists. So I find this moral argument to be a very powerful argument for God's existence with students. Bill, how would you respond to someone who said, well, this is just an argument from authority, might makes right, and you're just saying that because God said so, something's right. Oh, it's important to see that the moral theory I'm offering here is not some kind of what's called voluntarism, where God just makes up right and wrong, uh, mm -hmm. right makes right. No, no. The argument here is that what Plato called the good just is God. God mm. is essentially loving, kind, compassionate, fair, uh, generous, and so forth. And this essential uh, goodness of God constitutes then the absolute standard against which uh, actions um, are measured and, uh, and provides an absolute standard for uh, good and evil. And then I would say in terms of God's commands uh, from his good nature, uh, right and wrong as well. 
Uh, Dr. Craig has answered many, many questions on the moral argument and many other arguments on his website, reasonablefaith.org. He's up to almost 700 questions now, yeah. question of the week. So if you go to reasonablefaith.org and uh, type in morality or moral argument or any of these in the search engine, you'll get a lot more data than what we can cover here in just a few minutes. So if you want to go a lot deeper on that, please do. A couple other objections to this argument, Bill. I get this question a lot. Well, evolution just gives us morality. Can you give us a response or two to that? Yeah, that's an argument that I use in support of the first premise. If mm. God does not exist as a transcendent standard for good and evil, mm. then moral values are just the spin-offs of biological and sociocultural evolution. So they're mm. absolutely right what these students say. If atheism is true, it seems to me that's all moral values are. And if you were to rewind the film of human evolution and shoot the film over again, a very different kind of creature, a very different set of moral values might have evolved. And so who are we mm. to say that our values are right and theirs are wrong? Mm. There's no basis for it. You know, it's interesting, Bill, and I know you have that little video on the absurdity of life without God. Um, in this whole coronavirus situation, there is nobody on the atheist side or the Christian side saying, you know what, um, it's just survival of the fittest. Let's just let the, uh, the virus take out the, uh, the unfit people and the, the fittest will survive. So even atheists, someone like Richard Dawkins, who says that, uh, you know, there is no evil, there is no good, we just dance to our DNA. Even he admits that a Darwinian-type morality is something we ought not live by. Where is he getting a standard by which to say that, Bill? That's exactly right. I mean, Dawkins is an uh, undying moralist. He, <laughs> he gives lip service to relativism and moral mm -hmm. nihilism, but he can't live that way. And mm -hmm. so the God delusion is filled with moral judgments uh, for mm -hmm. which he has no basis. And in fact, I've argued, as you probably know, Frank, that it's really impossible to live consistently and happily right. within an atheistic framework. Nobody can live consistently and happily as though his life were valueless, purposeless, and meaningless. Bill, I noticed in your debate with Kevin Sharp at Ohio State, he threw a number of, uh, not theories at you, moral theories, but a number of, of philosophers that said, or that have some sort of way of, of, of explaining objective morality from an atheistic perspective. He didn't, he didn't cite any theory. He just said, these are all people that have theories. In your view, what is the best atheistic theory for objective moral values and obligations, uh, and why does that still fail? Well, I suppose, I guess, I would say the best would be Eric Wielenberg's um, Platonism, uh, you posit some sort of abstract entities like justice, love, fairness, loyalty, uh, and then you argue that we ought to order our lives so as to maximize these values in our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a debate with Eric Wielenberg on this where I presented a number of, I think, decisive objections to his naturalistic view, and this is going to be now released in the form of a book with responses by two uh, atheistic ethicists as well as uh, a couple of Christian ethicists. So if folks are interested in pursuing this theory further, uh, I'd commend the book to them. 
why would anybody be obligated to obey any naturalistic theory, Bill? Where do obligations come from? That's really hard. Say, say you do have Platonism, where there is this realm of abstract objects called moral values, like justice, loyalty, fair play. These really exist. Mm -hmm. well, probably on Platonism, moral vices also exist mm -hmm. as abstract objects. Lethargy, hatred, rapacity, <laughs> greed. Why am I uh -huh. obliged to align my life with one set of these abstract objects rather than the other? I, I can't see any basis in Platonism mm. for moral obligation and hence moral duty. It seems to me that every time an atheist tries to come up with some sort of sort of objective moral standard, they're smuggling in a standard into the system to try and make it work. I noticed that Sam Harris does that when he talks about human flourishing. We yeah. might agree that human flourishing is a good thing, but why is human flourishing a good thing? Yeah, especially on his view on atheism, mm -hmm. why seem to allow the flourishing of sentient life. In fact, he doesn't talk just about human flourishing, but the flourishing of sentient life, and that. Mm -hmm. Things like rats and mice <laughs> and other animals. So, on his view, if we were to say use the aged uh, or those who are susceptible to coronavirus as uh, food for rat farms, mm. uh, that would lead to the flourishing of sentient life on this planet and would therefore be the good. It would increase goodness, and therefore that's what we ought to do. Well, we have to get. We have to get to the New Testament before we run out of time here. And you, 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 you've done a wonderful job of supporting the New Testament with some minimal facts when you, uh, when you debate. Um, anybody can see these facts in, in On Guard or uh, on Bill's website, reasonablefaith.org. You can also, and you should, if you can, watch his Defenders class, which you can access on the Reasonable Faith podcast. Reasonable Faith, I'm sorry, Reasonable Faith um, app. You can get the Reasonable Faith app. He'll not only have the podcast up there, which he does every week, but also the Defenders class, which he teaches every week, and which has all of the previous teachings archived. So you can access any of this. It's like a seminary degree there. So instead of going through the minimal facts right now, Bill, I, I want to just deal with a couple of objections and then, and then go to questions from the audience. Um, one objection we hear quite a bit from atheists and non-believers is this idea that if you're going to say Jesus rose from the dead, that's an extraordinary claim. It requires extraordinary evidence. Can you can you respond to that, please? Yeah, that sounds, doesn't it, so commonsensical, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so right. And yet, Frank, it is demonstrably mistaken. Hmm. Uh, Probability theorists from the time of uh, Condorcet in the uh, 18th century until um, uh, the time of John Stuart Mill really struggled with the question of how much evidence it takes to establish highly improbable events. Hmm. What they discovered was that if you require the evidence to be more probable than the event, then you would be led to deny the reality of many highly improbable events, like, say, a lightning strike at right. a particular place, even though you have abundant evidence that that event is real. Something has gone wrong here. Well, mm -hmm. what we found out was that in the probability calculus, 
there was a factor that was being neglected by those who say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And you have to consider not only what is the probability of the event itself on our background information, but there's another probability you have to consider. You have to consider what is the probability of the evidence given the hypothesis compared to the probability of the evidence given that the hypothesis is false. Hmm. So hmm. If the uh, event, the extraordinary event had not taken place, what's the hmm. probability that we would have the evidence that we do? And what they discovered is that that probability, which is called the likelihood, that's the technical name for it, the likelihood of the hypothesis, that is the probability of the evidence given the hypothesis, that likelihood can outweigh easily any intrinsic probability of the event itself on the background information. So it is just demonstrably mistaken uh, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So Bill, if I understand this correctly, and I think I saw a short video, and you might have had this on your Instagram account. That's another way you can follow Dr. Craig. If you go to Instagram, he's got these little short videos that'll pop up on the feed, and one of these had to do with this. And if I understand this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, what, what you're saying here is that uh, what is the likelihood we would have um, people claiming there's an empty tomb, uh, even in Jerusalem, when it could have been, Christianity could have been stopped if the empty tomb was, was uh, refuted by demonstrating the body? What is the likelihood we'd have uh, documents written by Jews in the first century saying Jesus had risen from the dead? What is the likelihood... Uh, we would have uh, Christianity emerging out of Jerusalem when it could have been refuted easily. What is the likelihood Paul would have been converted and, and James would have been converted and uh, all the disciples would, would at least believe they had seen Jesus risen the dead if the resurrection had not occurred? Yes, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay. so what you do is you compare the probability of that evidence, given the mm -hmm. truth of the resurrection hypothesis, to the probability of that evidence occurring if the resurrection had not taken place. Mm, mm, mm. The evidence just makes it overwhelmingly more probable, or rather, pardon me, the evidence is overwhelmingly more probable given the truth of the resurrection hypothesis yes. than its falsity. And that likelihood then can outweigh mm. any probability that you think someone's rising from the dead might mm. have consider just against our background knowledge of the world before you look at the evidence. Well, you have pointed out so brilliantly that, of course, if the background knowledge includes the fact that Jesus, or I should say that God created the universe out of nothing, that the greatest miracle has already occurred, the probability for another miracle is, 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 is not nothing. It's something that God could, if he could create the universe out of nothing, raise Jesus from the dead. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's let's be clear for our listeners. Up to now, we've been talking about the likelihood. What mm. is the probability of the evidence given the hypothesis? Now we're shifting to that other probability. What is the probability of someone's rising from the dead, given our background knowledge of the world? Well, mm. as you say, Frank, if it includes the Kalam cosmological argument, the moral argument, the fine-tuning argument, mm -hmm. then you already know that there's a personal creator and designer of the universe. And so how can you say that a miracle is improbable 
mm. on that kind of background information. I don't mm. think you can have any confidence that a miracle is improbable given that sort of background information. Mm -mm. It's interesting, too, that they say that um, miracles don't occur because we don't observe them, which is sort of begging the question, <laughs> as C.S. Lewis pointed out. But if miracles occurred all the time, Bill, if, if resurrections occurred routinely, the resurrection of Jesus would mean nothing. They have to be rare to get our attention, don't they? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And that's why you can't calculate the probability of a miracle based mm. on its frequency, because it may be precisely the rarity of the event that mm. makes it highly probable that God would raise Jesus from the dead. It would be such a singular, spectacular mm -hmm. vindication of Jesus' radical personal claims. So the very unusualness of the event could be why it would be very probable that God would pick it to vindicate his son. I've uh, got one more question, but uh, I'll table that uh, because I want to get questions from our audience, Bill. I know they're, uh, we've got a very large audience watching right now, and they want to ask you some questions. So let's bring Jorge on in. And Jorge, let's go right to questions, and we'll try and get through as many as we can. Go ahead. Fellas, first question. Hello, Dr. Craig. In the Q&A, you said that in order to avoid the conclusion that God knows an actual infinite number of things, Regarding mathematical truths, one should hold to the Thomistic view that knowledge of God is not propositional. But in the recent Q&A, you established that the knowledge of God is propositional. My question is, how do you then solve the problem of knowing an actual, actually infinite number of things if God does have propositional knowledge? Oh, I, I think that the person misunderstood. Um, when I say that God has propositional, or has knowledge of all true propositions. One is speaking there of the extent of God's knowledge. That isn't talking about the mode of his knowledge. In fact, I think that God's knowledge is non-propositional in its mode. He has a simple intuition of all reality, um, but, when we express the extent of what God knows, as finite persons, we say, well, he knows all true propositions. Mm, okay. Between mode and extent. Mm -hmm. Good deal. Next one. What makes Christianity the one true religion over any other religion in existence today? Well, that it's true, right? <laughs> uh, and the way we know it's true is through arguments for the existence of God and evidence for God's self-revelation in Jesus of Nazareth uh, by raising him from the dead. What argument have you had the most success with when speaking with a person who seems indifferent? I think the moral argument, because it really hits people where they live. Every day you get up, you answer by how you treat other people, whether or not you think there are objective moral values and duties, and whether people have intrinsic moral worth or whether they're just means to be used for your ends. So the moral argument which shows that the affirmation of objective values and duties requires God, I think is existentially very compelling. Yeah. Uh, what was the toughest debate or best argument against Christianity that you've, you've been involved with? Well, those are actually two different questions because the toughest debates 
may not be the debates in which the best arguments are offered, but in which mm -hmm. the opponent is effective in emotionally connecting with the audience. Uh, for example, I had a debate with Corey Washington years ago, um, and it was going swimmingly uh, for me right up until the rebuttals. And then in the rebuttal phase, he simply read a description of a man dying from the Ebola virus and blood gushing out of his ears, his mouth, his anus, every orifice in his body. And then he said to the audience, couldn't God have made this guy suffer just a little less? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I could give my intellectual responses to the problem of evil, but the emotional impact of that was so incredible, I, I think it just couldn't be overcome. So oddly enough, sometimes the toughest debates will not be the intellectual ones. It'll be the ones where the speaker uses rhetoric and emotional stories mm -hmm. to try to move the audience to his side. Uh, in terms of the arguments, I, I think probably the best debate I had was with Doug Jessup, who was a professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina. And I believe a transcript of that debate is on our website. He was very responsible uh, philosopher. He had prepared responses, multiple responses, for every one of the five arguments that I gave. And afterwards, when I said to him, you're really a good debater, he said to me, thanks, I was on our university debate team. <laughs> Both the philosophical and the debate training, and therefore I think was the most formidable uh, opponent that I've ever faced. Excellent. Hey, Bill, can you can you quickly just give an overview of the argument you make regarding evil that we're not in a position to know yeah. uh, why God allows a particular evil? There's a ripple effect that goes on, and it might bring great good later. Can you just highlight yeah. that for me? This is a response to the probabilistic version of the mm -hmm. problem of evil, which says that God probably doesn't have good moral reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. And what I point out there is that we're just not in a position to make those kinds of probability judgments with any confidence at all. And the reason is because the tiniest event in history sends a ripple effect through history that can bring about unpredictable changes and differences in the world such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting something in my life might not emerge until centuries from now, uh, perhaps in another country. And therefore, we're simply not in a position to make these kinds of probability judgments with any sort of confidence at all. And it could go the other way too, Bill, right? With, with the coronavirus. I mean, one yeah. person may have made a mistake, correct? Yeah, this was a point I actually made in an interview with Justin Brierley last year. I heard week. it, yeah. One lab technician in a Chinese laboratory apparently made a misstep, brought this virus home to his girlfriend he was living with, and boom, as a result, it has spread throughout the world, causing thousands and thousands of deaths and unknown, I mean, un unimaginable economic havoc and hardship. And yet no one could have predicted such a thing based upon such a seemingly trivial event. Yeah. And that's why you shouldn't live with your girlfriend, ladies and gentlemen, right there. <laughs> yeah.
this one is, is when it comes to building our faith or a stronger relationship with God, should we take into account uh, spiritual ex spiritual experiences of other people or is logic and reason alone sufficient? If I understand the question, I would say that we should take into account the experiences of other people. Jan and I, over the years, have frequently met people who just seem to be on a different level than your average Christian. People who have a deep relationship with Christ, they love the Lord, uh, and they're committed to Christian work. They're just really special people. And I like to be around people like that. I hope that it'll rub off on me. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think it is valuable to learn from the spiritual experience of others like that. Absolutely. Uh, how does this argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, show that God is personal? Oh, I give three reasons for that very briefly. Number one, Uh, causal explanations can either be scientific or personal. The cause of the universe cannot be scientific because it is the first physical state and therefore cannot be explained in terms of natural laws operating on a prior state. So it must be personal if it has an explanation. Secondly, would be that we've already arrived at an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being that is responsible for the universe coming into existence. Now, the only candidates for a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, um, eternal being that I know of would be either an abstract object, like a number, or else mm -hmm. an unembodied mind or consciousness. Mm -hmm. But an abstract object doesn't stand in causal relations. So again, the cause must be an unembodied mind which is a person. The third argument would be is that I cannot think of any other way to explain the origin of an effect with the beginning from a timeless cause. If the cause is permanent and always there and is truly sufficient for the effect, then why isn't the effect always there? Uh, how do you get an effect with a temporal mm. beginning from a cause that is permanent? Well, the only way I can think of it is that if the cause is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will, mm -hmm. who can therefore arbitrarily cause an effect with the beginning in the absence of any antecedent determining conditions. And so these three independent arguments, I think, provide very powerful reasons for thinking that the cause of the universe is a personal, uh, unembodied mind. Okay. Joe Sharp asks, Dr. Craig, how do you reconcile being an anti-realist, the fact that non-existent that non ab abstract objects, which are conceptual analysis of the second premise of the Kalan cosmological argument that they do exist? I didn't understand the question. Uh, okay. You repeat it or explain it? Yes. Uh, how do you reconcile the fact that you're an anti-realist, right? Yes. And with your conceptual analysis of the second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument, where you state that they do exist? Well, he's just mistaken. The okay. second premise of the Kalam cosmological argument is that the universe began to exist. And that doesn't involve any commitment to abstract objects. I'll bet, Jorge, what he's thinking of is the moral argument, mm -hmm. where I say that objective moral values and duties exist. And um, that might look like a commitment to 
abstract moral values and duties. But I, I don't think that that's right. And here's a better way of putting it, is that moral values and duties are objective. And certainly I do believe that. And they're grounded in God, who is a mm -hmm. concrete object, not an abstract strategy. Yeah. What are, the, what are some of the major things other than design and morality that the general theory of evolution cannot account for? Well, I think that it, its explanatory mechanisms are heretofore inadequate. Random mutation and natural selection operate so slowly that it doesn't seem that this much biological complexity could have evolved on Earth in some 4.8 billion years. Um, indeed, John Barrow and Frank Tipler in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, list 10 steps in the course of human evolution like the origin of photosynthesis, the origin of an inner skeleton, the origin of mitochondria, 10 steps in the course of human evolution, each of which is so improbable that before it would have occurred or evolved, the sun would have ceased to be a main sequence star. It would have gone through the entire course of stellar evolution and incinerated the earth. So the explanatory mechanisms of current evolutionary biology seem to be inadequate to account for the biological complexity we see given the available time. Bill, let me ask you a question about that too. I know you're investigating this whole um, atom, empirical yeah. atom question right now. Um, we were mutually, you actually spoke at an event at ETS, uh, and I happened to be in the room and asked a question regarding theistic evolution. And my question was this, and I'd love to have uh, you answer this as well. My question to the theistic evolutionists was, what uh, evidence do you see for theistic or just for macroevolution of any kind uh, that could not equally be interpreted as evidence for a common designer or common creator? Yeah. What, how would you answer that question? I would say that the best evidence that the theistic evolutionists could offer would be features in the genome or the body plan of an organism which seem to be non-functional uh, and seem to be evolved from a common ancestor in which those genes were functional. So let me give one of the examples that Michael Behe gives. Mm -hmm. Olfactory genes that we and chimpanzees both have a sense of smell are called pseudogenes. They're broken. They don't work anymore. And yet mm -hmm. we and chimps have them. Why? Well, the best explanation seems to be that we got them from our last common ancestor who had these and that therefore we both share these kind of genes, even though they don't do any good at all in our genome. Um, to deny this, the creationist would have to say, well, God has chosen to design independently two organisms, chimps and humans, both with these broken parts in them that serve no good. It would be like saying that Ford and GM both designed independently a car with the same broken door handle mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I find that to be the most.
persuasive argument for thinking that the thesis of common ancestry um, is at least in part true. But then you would need a mechanism to give you common ancestry, and therein lies the problem. Yeah. Right. The question would be, is random mutation and natural mm -hmm. selection enough to generate these biologically complex organisms from these common ancestors? So there are two separate issues here, Frank, mm -hmm. that need to be kept distinct. One is mm -hmm. what the thesis of common ancestry. Do we, in fact, have common ancestry with other animals? Mm -hmm. And that's the least objectionable thesis of theistic evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Michael Behe are quite ready to accept. Mm -hmm. Other question is, are the explanatory mechanisms posited by evolutionary theory, like um, random mutation and natural selection, mm -hmm. adequate to explain the evolution of biological complexity. And that, I think, is a much more difficult issue. Yes, and I remember Stephen Meyer answering the question, because he was on the panel too, after one gentleman of the theistic evolution sort gave the sort of answer you gave, uh, Stephen said, well, we've been investigating some of those broken genes, and we've discovered we don't think they're really broken. So yeah. obviously, you'd have to do that on a case-by-case -case basis. Who knows what the right answer is? But this, this seems to change every 10 minutes, it seems. Yes, this is, and, and you're exactly right. This is what would need to be investigated. For example, the misnomer of junk DNA. Exactly, yes. Now mm -hmm. the non-coding regions of the genome is vital in regulatory uh, function. So um, you're right. One mustn't jump to conclusions uh, mm. in that regard, especially if, like me, you're a scientific layman, not a biologist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you have to just try to see where the best arguments lie. Well, however, well, Bill, and, and I, you don't, you shouldn't sell yourself short on this because it seems to me that one of the absolute requirements for any scientist is to be good at philosophy because if you're not good at philosophy you're not going to interpret the data properly and that's where you're so good bill because you are philosophically trained i tell you frank that is so true what is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander and if i expect natural scientists to invest some time in the study of philosophy in order mm -hmm. to understand the philosophy of science, then I, by the same measure, want to invest a good deal of time trying to understand the contemporary worldview of modern science mm -hmm. um, as a philosopher. And I think that this kind of integrative work is absolutely essential. Naive mm -hmm. scientists like Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, are doing a great disservice mm. to lay people in mm. pronouncing on issues which they, as natural scientists, have no expertise to uh, speak to. They don't seem well, to understand, Bill, and this is one of the things I bring out in my book, Stealing from God, that science no. actually doesn't say anything. Scientists say things, and quite frequently, if they have the wrong philosophical view, they will interpret the data in such a way as to rule out what could be the actual cause. If they're ruling out intelligent causes in advance, Bill, they might not see intelligence, even if the evidence seems to point in that direction. Now that, that's so true. You've got to 
be alert to the philosophical presuppositions of the people that you're interacting with. Bill, uh, I have a ton more questions, but we're out of time. And this is a show about hope. So can you give the people who are watching right now uh, where our hope comes from? I mean, we're talking about evidence and arguments here, but where, where really is our hope? Well, I think our hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent my doctoral dissertation at the University of Munich on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm convinced that belief in life eternal is not some pie in the sky hope, but is grounded in the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, for which we have very good evidence. And so when in this finite lifetime, we experience disease, uh, physical impairment, uh, aging, and other shortcomings of our bodily existence, it's only with the knowledge of an eternal prospect of a resurrection body that is immortal, imperishable, glorious, and supernatural, uh, in which we shall live forever in the love and presence of God. So that's the basis of our hope when going through this um, valley uh, of our finite uh, world and, and death. Amen. Bill, thank you for your work, your life's work that has made that a lot more reasonable than people previously thought. I mean, you, you deal with uh, objections to postmodernism, objections to the arguments for God, or you deal with objections to miracles, you deal with objections to people saying Jesus rose from the dead. You've done that master masterfully. And again, friends, I want to really encourage you, if you don't have On Guard, at least get On Guard. Also go to reasonablefaith.org. Get the reasonablefaith.org app, and you can follow Dr. Craig wherever he goes. You can listen to the podcast there. You can watch and listen to the Defenders broadcast there. You also want to look at Dr. Craig's uh, what we call Zangmeister videos. He's teamed up with uh, our mutual friend Jim Zangmeister. Many of the arguments we've talked about here on Hope One today are in the short little videos that you guys have done a wonderful job on. So, Bill, thank you so much for all you do. Oh, thank you, Frank, for that endorsement. You know, we got the Zangmeister from you. That was when we first saw his work, was that Problem of Evil video. And he has done yep. great work for reasonable mm -hmm. But thank well, you. He couldn't. He couldn't have done it without you, Bill. You're the mm -hmm. you're the mind behind those videos, and I encourage people to go watch the videos. Go to reasonablefaith.org. There's one of their Bill. I bet about ten of them now. How many are there? Ten. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they 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 cover all the arguments we've talked about today in a very succinct and a a very enjoyable format that you can share with others. So thank you so much, Bill. By the way, friends watching next week. David Wood, Jay Warner Wallace, Elisa Childers, uh, Pastor David Chadwick, and Max McLean. So you don't want to miss next week on Hope One. And maybe, maybe we'll have Dr. Craig on uh, a month or so from now to talk more about these issues. Dr. Craig, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Craig. 11.30 tomorrow, and I'm going to make a request before I go out because I got the controller. And he's, many people are asking you, bring back the beard. Bring back the beard. It would be gray, and I would look so old and haggard. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. You start beard like you do, Harvey. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see. I might, I might send you, you. You give me debate tips, and I'll give you beard oil tips, and then we go from there. 
All right, All right guys. Thank Jen. you very much. God bless you. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.